<clears throat> Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is our class on the Mort d'Arthur, session number nine uh, tonight, as we are about ready to finish, in fact, finished the first section of the Mort d'Arthur. So, and start one of the most uh, challenging, actually, parts of the Mort d'Arthur, I think. Um, but uh, welcome. Hi, sorry. So uh, I apologize. I'm a little bit late today. Uh, sorry about that. Um, I, my mother-in-law arrived tonight. <laughs> Let me just leave it at that. So it's all good. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so everything's excellent. So I, here we are. <laughs> Let's start class. So um, a quick... Um, um, just uh, two quick announcements, uh, things to remind you of that are coming up, uh, and that is first, our next regional moot, which is Middle Moot in Kansas City. So for those of you vaguely in the middle of the country, Kansas City uh, is the spot this year for our Middle Moot, uh, and it's going to be great. It's going to be October 6th, that's the Saturday of Columbus Day weekend. Um, and it's uh, uh, it's going to be it's it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be um, so you know, as usual, it's going to be a one-day event there on the Saturday, October sixth. We'll have lunch provided and everything. So if you can uh, make it down, I totally encourage you. Um, I totally encourage you to do that. Um, <laughs> I see someone is hearing the uh, uh, running water. That's possible. Possible that you're hearing running water. Um, I am broadcasting, as always, uh, from my glamorous Signum University outpost, which is in fact in the basement of my house. So yeah, I've got a bunch of water pipes going up above. I think my son's taking a shower. So that often happens this time of night. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is the life. I used to I used to run Signum University out of a storage closet in my house in Delaware, but that was back in our early startup days. Now I run it out of the basement, so uh, so that's good. I remember, I remember in that first semester, the first Signum class I ever taught, I was traveling. I was up here in New Hampshire visiting my family one week, and I had class from up here. Uh, and I remember uh, uh, bragging about the fact that I was. Uh, that I was broadcasting from my parents' basement <laughs> that night. <laughs> that was fun. Um, but um, anyway, it's um, uh, it's all good. So anyway, um, so yeah, um, cool, cool. Okay, so yeah, fully accredited basement. Getting there, getting there. Yeah, though of course, uh, Boomful. This uh, led to a lot of. Um, uh, this led to a lot of, of jokes, needless to say, we're talking about the site visit, right? Like, you're welcome to come to my luxurious basement apartment uh, uh, to visit our campus. But of course, it's not really, it's not really the thing. It's all good. All right. Um, other thing. So that's one thing. One thing. Kansas City, Middle Moot, coming up. Going to be awesome. Uh, uh, October 6th. So definitely as we're moving on through September, we're starting to run out of time for registration for that. So I definitely want to encourage you to, um, uh, to, to get involved there. The second thing. Fundraising campaign is about to start. Uh, not about to start. That's perhaps a little a little too much. We're about a week and a half away. Next Saturday, of course, we always start on Hobbit Day 
on Bilbo's birthday um, is going to be the first day of our official uh, sixth annual, I believe, this year uh, fall fundraising campaign, um, which, as always, is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have some special events. We're going to do some special activities and giveaways and things during our regular class sessions. Uh, we're going to have I'm going to do my Lotro marathon. We're going to do uh, uh, the the. Uh, end of campaign webathon as always uh, so uh, lots of fun stuff every year look forward to the fundraising campaign and as always enormously appreciate your support and encouragement during that time you guys uh, and again you know I've just been during the the whole process up here in the state of New Hampshire this past summer I've been doing so much bragging about you guys uh, and how you know we have I if we are not the first simply crowdfunded university ever I, I don't know who is um, I kind of I kind of th- think we have to be the first no endowment totally crowdfunded university uh, it's kind of awesome actually so uh, anyway the 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 support you guys have given in years past has been just awesome and and uh, really looking forward to your support again so that will be. Again, starting uh, in about a week and a half, and I'll, I'll give you some more details about that next week. Um, okay, let us get back to Mallory. We're going to finish up. Um, well, I say finish up. We're going to start the uh, the final section, the uh, uh, Sir uh, Gawain, Sir Uwain, and uh, Sir Marhaus section. Um, and uh, I'm going to skip most of the end bits uh, Sir Owain and Sir Marhaus don't do too much that's super exciting. I mean, you know, like, they enter tournaments and win, you know, they, like, right some wrongs and fight some other knights and stuff. Um, I'm going to focus there primarily on the framework of that adventure. The three, uh, the three, uh, uh, woman guides, uh, element of that, of that adventure, uh, in particular. And then we're going to focus most on Sir Gawain behaving badly. Um, and then it will be on to, uh, um, it will be on to Rome <laughs> after that. Everybody's favorite section of the Mortar Tour. All right. So let's get going. So the three of them head out and you may remember how this came to be, right? Uh, Sir Uwain um, was kicked out, right? He was booted from Camelot in the post-Morgan Le Fay controversy moment, right? Um, when uh, Arthur comes home from his betrayal by Morgan Le Fay, and you'll recall that he, he exonerates King Uriens, her husband, for the good reason that he knows that she was planning to kill him too, right? So he's obviously not in it. He's not uh, um, allied with his wife uh, in betraying Arthur, so um, so he, he sort of uh, doesn't uh, punish uh, King Oriens for that. But Sir Owain, he's less sure about, right? Her son, he's less sure about. So he, uh, he just sort of has him take a leave of absence. He doesn't exile him exactly, but he has him take a leave, right, from Camelot. And Gawain is upset, because he's his cousin, right? They're first, they're, he's his cousin Germain, which means he's his first cousin. So uh, so he says, I'm going to go out with him, and then they meet up with Sir Marhaus. Sir Marhaus fights Gawain and beats him significantly, because there's a relatively short list of other knights who have managed to beat Sir Gawain. Um, and you may remember also there's that business about um, Gawain's strength, how through the course of the day 
his strength gets greater and greater and greater, and Sir Marhaus just kind of waits him out, right, until his strength then begins to wane again, and then Sir Marhaus beats him. And that seems to be not... I don't think... Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly certain that is not merely a uh, a testimony to his strike to Gawain's strength, right? Like that when when his strength waxes greater and greater, this doesn't just mean like he's so studly that as the fight goes on, instead of getting weaker, he gets stronger. There's something magical going on there. Like his his strength is magically enhanced in certain hours of the day. Um and that's going to become more explicit. The way he said he talked about it in this early section, it was a little bit unclear um, as to whether or not it was natural, again, or whether it was just sort of a compliment to his strength. It will be made more explicit later on that this is an actual enchantment that is laid upon Gawain, that at certain hours of the day, in the middle of the day, he gets stronger and stronger. Uh, and then, uh, until he's strongest at noon, and then his uh, strength wanes again after noon. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to kind of mention that, mention that that's sort of a thing with Gawain, though it's it's not going to be a big um, plot point until later uh, in the story when it will be explained again. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that. So I want to pick up the story of Gawain, Uwain, and Marhaus when they are all three of them together, so they've made up, right? They've had their fight. Uh, uh, they have decided to travel together and to go on adventures. And so this is, of course, where their adventures begin. And so they rode and come into a deep valley full of stoneness, and thereby they saw a fair stream of water. Above and thereby was the head of the stream, a fire, a fire fountain, and three damsels sitting thereby. And thon they rode to them, and either saluted other. And the eldest had a garland of gold about her head, and she was threescore winter of age, and her hair was wheat under the garland. The second damsel was of thirty winter age, with a circlet of gold about her head. The third damsel was but fifteen year of age, and a garland of fleurs about her head. Juan the Knictis had so behold them, they asked him the cows why they sat at the fountain. We be here, said the damsels, for this cows. If we may see any of Arunt Knictis to teach him unto strong adventures. And ye be three Knictis adventurous, and we be three damsels. And therefore, each one of you must choose one of us. And when ye have done so, we will lead you unto three highways. And there each of you shall choose a way, and his damsel with him. And this die twelve month. Ye must meet here again, and God send you the livers, and thereto you must plight your truth. This is well said, said Sir Marhaus. Now shall every of us choose a damsel. Okay, so, um, yeah, Mike is saying, is, is it sort of like the, the maiden, the matron, and the crone archetype? Sort of. I mean, it's like that, right? Certainly in the ages, right? Um, we have the one who's 15 years, right? So she's, she's the, she is, you know, the, the maiden. And then we have the one who is more uh, sort of motherly, right? And then the one who's more grandmotherly. So yeah, it certainly looks like maiden, matron, crone. It's not exact. The thing that gives me sort of pause there a little bit um, is that notice they're called three damsels. That is, they're all virgins. So the, 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 
the matron one, she's 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 not a matron. She's not a mother, right? Um, uh, all three of them are are damsels. All three of them are maidens. They're just different ages of maidens. Um, and uh, so in that, but Mike, you know, the thing is, uh, isn't that just like so many things we've seen before, right? Something which looks almost exactly like what you would expect to find from fairy tale tradition, right? But not quite. Uh, just like Merlin with his like, I will give, I will grant you, I will perform some magic. I will cast an enchantment upon you to enable you to sleep with the woman that you desire. But I will come and ask you a favor later on. And when he does, he comes and says, you must give me the child that you, that was begotten in that hour. Right. Sounds straight out of a fairy tale until he explains why he's doing it. Right. And, and it's, anyway, just so many times it has been so close to, like the regular fairy lore, but it's not. Uh, Mike is wondering if it's sort of the willful subverting of the trope. You know, I don't know, Mike. It's possible. It's possible. I don't know. I can't really decide. I can't decide whether or not... I think that the trend is persistent enough. That is, this, this whole trend of using elements from fairy stories, but kind of getting them wrong or shifting them around so they're not really fairy stories anymore. Um, I'm kind of... It seems to me, Mike, that there are two most plausible explanations of this. One is that Mallory is just kind of messing it up, right? That is... Either he's not super interested in these elements, or he doesn't really get it. Um, you know, either he's ignorant, or just kind of lukewarm on the whole fairy story thing. So the sources that he's working with have these elements, right? And so he's transmitting a form of them, right? But he's not really... He just either can't be bothered or doesn't even understand it, like doesn't even get it, um, doesn't realize that he's not quite getting it right. Um, so this being a, just a kind of a blind spot of Mallory's or sort of a failure of his is one reading, I think, that we could do of this whole trend uh, in Mallory's work. The other would be a, a more willful subversion, Mike, as you were asking about. I think that we could... I think that we can formulate a reading that says he wants to keep these elements because they're recognizable elements of the stories, but he's deliberately deferrying them a little bit, right? Um, but I, myself, um, exactly, Karita, that's a very uh, a very succinct way of saying it. Is he sloppy or subversive? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. My tendency, I. If he were submersive, if he were submersive, submersive, that's not just not at all the word I want. Subversive. That's the word. Uh, see, Karina, it's the running water that had me. It's good. It's done now. But anyway, subversive. Uh, if he were being subversive, the way the most what I would expect, um, what I would expect to see from that kind of subversion would be a Christian subversion. That is. I'm going to take it, but I'm going to integrate it, and 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 I'm going to I'm going to sanctify it within a Christian framework. That's fairly common. 
Um, that's pretty kind of garden variety medieval subversion of fairy stuff, right? Um, and some of what he does smells like that a little bit, right? Especially Merlin with the like Merlin as Old Testament prophet, Merlin working with the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? Uh, uh, the thing which seemed to be magic that Merlin was arranging being characterized as a miracle from God. Some of those things, especially in, in, in those beginning stages, um, sounded kind of like that. Um, but it's not consistent enough. It's not thoroughgoing enough to really convince me uh, that that's the case. Um, most of the time, I mean, I've seen medieval authors do this kind of thing. It's not like they're going to be, sh- you know, like coy about it. They're not coy about it. Um, it's totally... Um, it's a it's a pretty standard thing to do. So if he wanted to do it, he would just do it, and he wouldn't try to be, um, you know, all kind of halfway about it. Um, and his works as a whole are not very theologically interested. Like somebody who had that kind of a was sort of grinding th- that kind of a theological axe, I would expect it to be more visible. You know, I mean, again, that's not, it's not something to be ashamed of, right? People do this kind of thing all the time in storytelling um, in the Middle Ages. It's, it's, uh, it's good. So, but he doesn't. Um, and he's, he's not really, his primary focus is not really the, the moral, the theological or, or, uh, or, or moral reading. So, in the end, I think, um, um, I think sloppy is kind of more likely, but it's very much more... I mean, Carita, I absolutely agree with you. Subversive is more fun to think about, right? Um, sloppy isn't fun. Uh, I always... Whenever I feel like the evidence is leading me to conclude that the author's not doing something, like, really interesting, but rather it's just kind of messed up a little bit, uh, I'm always disappointed in that reading. I always dislike that reading, but sometimes... That's kind of what the data suggests. And it is to me, too. I'm just I'm not sure he has an ear for it. I'm really not. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. Okay. So, we're going to pick damsels, and we're going to go on adventures. One of the things that I wanted to put, and of course my subtitle of this slide is The Adventure Industry. It's like this... These three damsels, like, this is their job, right? You know, like, some some places, you know, rely on the tourist industry. You know, their job is to support the adventure industry. So the three damsels are just waiting for adventurous knights to come along. And when they do, their job, given to them by we don't know whom or for what reason, uh, is to guide them to uh, strong adventures. So... Uh, that's what they're there for, and that's what they're going to go on and do. Now, you'll remember that uh, Sir Uwain chooses first, and he chooses the eldest damsel um, and for a very humble reason, right? He says that he's the youngest of the three of the knights, and so that it would be best for him to have the wisdom and guidance of the eldest of the damsels, right? So he, he asks for the 60-year-old. Um, uh, Sir Marhas, without much explanation, says, I'll take the 30-year-old, right after Uwain shoots. And uh, Gawain's like, ah, you've left me the young hot one. That's okay with me, right? He's he's pretty cheerful about this. Um, 
And he, that's not exactly his word, but it's the equivalent word. Uh, you know, she's young and fair, and he's very pleased uh, to, be, uh, to, be left, uh, to be left with her. And so the three of them lead them off on adventures. Now, Gawain's um, damsel is the one who is most interesting. Neither of the other two are very strong actors in the dramas that come afterwards. Um... Oops, wrong way. Okay. Gawain, Gawain's damsel is interesting because he loses her, right? I mean, she runs off on him. So, okay. So if you remember the context of this, um, the two of them, Gawain is fighting with one night, right? Two knights come up and are opposing Gawain, right? So we are, so, Van come there to all knechtes, all armed and cry, cried on hicht. Sir Gawain, knecht of the court of King Arthur, mock thee ready and hast, and just with me. So they ran together, and either fell down, and then on foot they drew their swerders and did full actually. The meanwhile, the other knecht went to the damsel and asked her, we she abode with that knecht, and said, If ye will abide with me, I will be your faithful knecht. And with you will he be, said the damsel, for ye may not find in my heart to be with him. For Rick knew here was unknecht that discomfited ten knechtes, and at the last he was cowardly led away. And there let us two go while they fight. And she takes off, right? So she disapproves of Sir Gawain's actions. Which is ironic, right? It's ironic because she... Um, <laughs> I love the pickup line, right? I mean, the knight literally comes over with he's like, hey, baby, right? If you will abide with me, I will be your faithful knight, right? Why don't you ditch that loser and come with me? And she's like, okay, right? Um, but she disapproves of him. Now, this is the interesting thing to me, and I don't know what to do with this. I really don't. Sir Gawain is about to do one of the most shameful things that even Mallory's Sir Gawain ever does, okay? He's going to do a terrible thing. Um, yeah, he's going to do a terrible thing. She ditches him. She disapproves of his actions. But the actions of which she disapproves are fine. He hasn't done anything wrong yet. He's done two things. Right? Remember, the first thing that happens is, they, is what she describes, right? They see this one knight who jousts with ten knights in a row and beats them all, and then they come and they, they like, he doesn't fight them, and they, they take him prisoner, and they beat him, and they tie him shamefully beneath his horse's belly, which is apparently extremely disgraceful, and, uh, and lead him away. And she's mad that Sir Gawain didn't intervene, right? Gawain doesn't intervene for what seems to me like very good reasons, because she said, you know, he said like that night obviously wanted that to happen. He could have stopped it. Right. Um, and I don't think he would thank me if I came in and interrupted that because he is, he obviously chose that. Right. So, I mean, yes, it's shameful. Gawain is kind of scandalized by it too. And immediately after she leaves, he's going to go and find out, what the like as soon as he is 
taken in by another knight who can tell him anything, right? He The first thing he asks about is like, who is that knight who overcame ten knights and then allowed himself uh, to be hogtied and taken away? Um, he's concerned and he goes and he sets out to help, he says, right? So her condemnation of Gawain seems totally unfounded. And then you'll remember the other thing that he did is when he sees the, the, the knight and the dwarf fighting over this damsel and he resolves this and he resolves this in quite a shocking fashion right he lets the girl choose he's like so let's ask the damsel damsel which one of these two would you rather go with the knight or the dwarf and she's like dwarf every day of the week right and she goes off with him and the and the knight's pretty disappointed and goes away right and the damsel doesn't seem to like that either uh, that is Gawain's damsel, the 15-year-old damsel. But both of those, like, th- th- this is the best Gawain has shown up yet. And yet, those are the th- two things that lead his 15-year-old damsel um, to um, to ditch him. Yeah, David Erbach says that uh, Gawain is actually trying to be thoughtful here, but it, but it, but it backfires. Yeah, yeah, it, which is interesting. And like I said, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what to do with it. Um, it is true. Now, Karita, you are right to say that, um, Karita points out that it says that she is but 15, right, when he's, when he's describing the three damsels. Uh, and that does indicate that she is young. And that's true. But 15, 15 is marriageable age, right? Uh, we will also see boys knighted at 15, Sir Tor isn't much older than 15 when he did his adventures. Um, So, I mean, keep in mind that the modern tendency to consider teenagers children until they're at least 18, if not 21, uh, is very modern. That's just not how they thought in the Middle Ages. Um, The the youngest marriageable age for both boys and girls. It, well, okay, for girls it's 12, for boys it's 14. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 15 is young. She's young. She's a young damsel. Um, but she's on the young end of adult. She would not have been considered a child at 15. Um, I know this kind of gives modern people the creeps, the whole like marriageable at 12 thing. And, you know, 12 is early and a little bit sketchy. Um, Chaucer has fun with this, um, with the wife of Bath, who is married off at the age of 12 to like a 70 year old, uh, guy. Um, and she has a lot of fun talking about that. Um, so it's clear that there is like some unease, some uh, awareness that this is, uh, skanky, even that, that is skanky, even in the middle ages. However, 15, 15 is, she's young, but she's, she's not a child and she wouldn't have been uh, treated as a child. Um, yeah, yeah. Um,
Yeah, I wonder. Um, Dolores Stroke is wondering if this is trying to set up some distance between a proper view of chivalry and the adolescent girl or sort of naive view of chivalry. You know, it is possible. It is possible that she... Because if you think about it, right, the two things... The two things that Gawain does right that she gets wrong, right? Um, the pa- there is a clear pattern there, and that's she is A, wanting to see rash action, and B, she's judging by appearances, right? Um, you just stood there and let them treat that guy shamefully, right? That was wrong of you. That was irresponsible of you. You are a... Um, you know, you are you are obviously a worthless knight if you are uh, just going to stand there and watch and let that happen, right? And But Gawain is kind of seeing more than she's seeing there, right? He's saying, well, yeah, okay, that that is a shameful thing to do, but there's obviously more to this story. She doesn't seem interested in that. Nor does she seem to care who the other damsel wants to go with, right? Again, it's like, this is how it's... But when you've got a knight and a dwarf fighting over a a, a a damsel, obviously it's the knight who should get her, right? That's how it works. She didn't go off with the dwarf, right? Of course not. Um, yet that's what she chose, and so Gawain let her do that. Um, yeah, yeah. Milthalio, yeah, oh yeah, it was, it was totally based on child getting. Absolutely, yeah. W- once you could, once you could get or bear a child, uh, Biologically, you are marriageable. Yeah, no, that's it. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, which of course is why, for men, the marriageable age was older, because men, you know, boys go through puberty later than girls usually. You know, so, um, yep, that's it. Um, yeah. So, but and here's the interesting thing, right? You would think that had Gawain, remember, was all over pleased about getting the young, cute damsel, right? But um, he didn't choose, right? Again, he didn't. I mean, yeah, it's you get the impression that that would have been his choice had he gone first, right? Uh, and he's really glad that it ended up the way that it did. But he didn't get the chance to do that, right? So, is this a, a lesson to him? A rebuke to him? That if he just, you know, if he says, I'm given these choice among these three damsels and I'm going to choose the young, cute one, um, he's being very superficial in his own choosing there, right? Selfish and superficial. And as a result, he gets the selfish, superficial damsel, right? Again, the problem that I have with that is that's not how it went, right? He didn't, if, if he had been like, I want the cute one, dibs on the cute one, right? If that had been Gawain from the beginning, that lesson for him to learn would have made a little bit more sense to me. Um, now, Mithalia asks a wonderful question. Are we supposed to agree with the damsel here? See, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I don't... I think that Gawain is in the right in both of these cases. And that she is missing the point. Now, he's gonna screw it up. (laughs) Right? Gawain is not gonna cover himself with glory uh, in the rest of his quest here. So she's wrong about his actions that he has taken or the things that he hasn't done, right? The things he has omitted to do uh, so far in the early stages here. She's wrong about him. Um, he's done right, and her assessment is incorrect. And yet, 
And yet, he's going to be wrong, right? So she's wrong about what he's already done, but she's not wrong about him, right? Um, at the end of the day, was ditching Gawain and going off with this other dude probably the right move? <laughs> yeah, probably was, actually, right? Because uh, Gawain can't really be trusted. Um, and yet, her reasoning is not right. So, where did, so Mathalia, where does that put us then, right? I mean, I can't... Later on in the story, especially when we get to the Holy Grail, we're going to come across many people, uh, people, uh, characters in the story whose role is to be like a prop in the adventure, right? A test for the night. But they usually know it. Uh, They often know it. They're enacting a role. We see this. We'll see this kind of thing a lot. Um, so I can imagine a scenario in which the damsel ditches Sir Gawain in order to test him, right? What's he going to do? How's he going to react or, or like to teach him a lesson or something of that kind? Um, I can imagine a reading like that. Um, and yet her words here, her attitude doesn't seem to fit that. She doesn't seem like she's in the know, right? Like she's part of the system that is, you know, measuring and testing Sir Gawain. She just sounds equally as superficial as Gawain. If anything, it seems to me, um, if anything, it seems to me to work almost the other way around, that instead of her being a testing figure, her being a teaching figure for Gawain, or part of a teaching lesson to him. It's almost like she is like a reflection of him, right? That her flightiness, that her poor judgment um, reflects his poor judgment, right? She is a bad damsel because he's a bad knight. Uh, and so it's kind of a, it's kind of a message or, or a warning or an indicator, right? That the knight, the damsel that he's ended up with turns out to be the subpar damsel, right? Because he's a subpar knight. Um, uh, so I think it's, yeah, I think it's more about the the choices, the damsels that they've ended. So the damsels being, and this seems a little bit unattractive to the damsels as characters, but then being kind of reflections of or extensions of the knights themselves, right? Because remember, there's that irony about the humility of Sir Uwain, right? I mean, the the humility to say, I am the youngest of us and I am most in need of wisdom and guidance. And so therefore I will, I will choose the eldest of the damsels so that I can, you know, partake of her wisdom and be guided by her is by far the wisest move of any of the three of them, right? So he may be the youngest, but his choice is the wisest of all three of them. And so, like, what does he get? He made a wise choice, and so he gets the wise damsel, who is sort of the reflection of the wisdom and humility that he undertook um, with that. Um, and uh, and then Gawain, his reaction is superficial, and he gets, so he gets the, like, you know, uh, airhead damsel um, uh, as a reflection of his own... Uh, Oh, Mythology says maybe that's why they're by the water, because uh, they are like they're reflections in the fountain. 
I like that. That's kind of fun, actually. Uh, that they go to the fountain, and at the fountain they are connected with, with this sort of inverse reflection of themselves, right? The, the, like that, their own characters, their own choices, sort of embodied in damsels before them, right? I like that. That that that's, that's good. That works for me. Um, yeah, cool. So in that way, it's different. It's very different from. The, the other paradigm that I was describing, like the Holy Grail paradigm, where the people are acting in order to teach them or to test them for a certain thing or to teach them a certain thing, to measure them to an objective standard or instruct them in an objective standard or, or rebuke them for a thing that they're doing wrong. Instead, it just sort of brings to the surface through the character and actions of the damsels who they actually are, maybe? Yeah, that works for me. That works for me. Um, okay. Let's go to the story of Sir Peleus, that poor knight who unhorses the ten guys and then allows himself to be taken prisoner. So this is the story of Sir Peleus, um, who is a great knight and an honorable fellow, but a bit of a stalker. And so he chose here for his sovereign lady. This is Lady Etard, right? And never to love other but her, but she was so proud that she had scorn of him, and said she would never love him, though he would die for her. Wherefore all ladies and gentlewomen had scorn of her, for th- that she was so proud. For there were fairer than she, and there was none that was there, but and Sir Pelias would have proffered him love, they would have showed him the sum for his noble prowess. And so this knicked promised Etard to follow here into this country and never to leave here till she loved him. And thus he is here, the most party nigh her, and lodged by a priory. And every week she sendeth Knictis to feast with him. And when he hath put him to the worse, then will he suffer him willfully to talk him prisoner, because he will have a seat of his lottie. So he can be dragged prisoner in front of Lady Etard. At least he gets to see her, right? And always she doth him great despite, for sometime she mocketh her connectus to tie him to his horse tile, and sometime bind him under the horse belly. Thus in the most shamefulest wheeze that she can think, he is brought to here. And all, and all she doth it for to cause him to leave this country, and to leave his loving. But all this cannot make him to leave, for and he would a fought a fought on foot, he might have had the better of the ten connectors as well on, as on foot as on horseback. Alas, said Sir Gawain, here is great pity of him, and after this night I will seek him tomorrow in this forest to do him all the help I can. Oh, well, that sounds good. What a sad story. So, okay, so... <laughs> Oh, Deborah, you are very flattering to my reading skills. I'm getting a little bit better. I'm still screwing up all over the place. Uh, I have to admit, I kind of uh, went backwards a bit this week because I was just reading other, like, 14th century Middle English and so throwing off my brain. But anyway, um, so I know from a modern standpoint, Sir Pelleas sounds super creepy. Right. He's absolutely stalking her and can't take a hint. Like, she's not into you, Sir Peleus. Move on. Right. Like, I get it. Um, but one thing that we can see clearly from the um, uh, 
from the description. And I'm going to have to ask, I'm pretty sure here, I'm going to have to ask you just to accept this framework. He's in the right and she's in the wrong. I know it sounds bad, right? But um, one of the sort of ways that this works, if you're a lady and there is a knight who loves you, you have the right to reject him. You do. But you can't just reject him arbitrarily. You have to have a reason to reject him. And he's proven himself. And he's proven himself in two ways. First, general prowess, right? This guy is a stud. Uh, And as the host, as Gawain's host tells him here, there were other fairer ladies. Everybody thought she was lucky that he chose her, right? Um, She was, you know, and, you know, it's kind of a, like, I don't know. It's sort of the way it works. If you, um, uh, if you think for a second to where we're going to be headed before too long, that is Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere, that's natural, perfectly natural, right? Um, the queen, who is not only the highest lady in the land, she's also the most beautiful lady in the land. She is at the apex of the amorous food chain, right? Um, no lesser knight I mean, it would be totally inappropriate for a lesser knight to aspire, to even think about loving Guinevere, right? Lancelot is the best knight in the land. They deserve each other, right? That's a fit match between Lancelot and Guinevere. It's going to be totally, like, mainstream for the two of them to get together. It's how it tends to work. If a knight wants your love, again, you can say you just don't like him, but you might take criticism for that unless you have a reason. Has he failed in one of two ways? Either has he failed to prove himself, right? You can say like, dude, you've not done enough accomplishments. You've not accomplished enough accomplishments, right? Go out, win some tournaments, prove you're a great fighter, right? Prove you are a very noble knight by your prowess, right? Then maybe I'll consider you worthy of me. If you as a lady say that, totally within your rights, everyone will respect that, right? He did. He, the context of his falling in love with her was when he won this big tournament, right? And proved himself way better. I mean, he's, Sir Pelleas is really, really good. I mean, he's like top 10, Sir Pelleas. Um, so maybe even top five. He's very good, Sir Pelleas. Um, so Sir Pelleas has proven himself. He therefore, by merit, sort of deserves his pick of one of the greatest ladies in all the land. He's chosen her. She is beneath him, right? And yet she won't have him. There's another reason, of course, why, which is perfectly, uh, perfectly legitimate grounds for rejecting a knight who is seeking your love. And that is if he's not faithful to you, 
right? If he fails to show himself to be your dutiful servant, like you tell him to do stuff and he doesn't do it. He dallies with other women. There are things, you know, that he can do to, to no matter how great his prowess on the tournament field, that he can, you know, show that he's not worthy, right? And that you can reject him. Those things are totally fine, right? But he's not only not failed in that, he's exemplary, right? His faithfulness to her. Again, the modern world, we would call it stalking. Here they would call it faithfulness, right? He is abjectly faithful to her. That's good. That's almost optimal what he's doing, right? Being willing to suffer shame for her sake, right? Uh, he's willing to allow himself to be dishonored if only for the sake of a if, if, if it will only provide her a sight of her, that's dedication, man. That is dedication. So this is why she is getting criticism, because he is totally qualified. He is overqualified for her love, right? And has shown himself more faithful to her, more devoted to her, more unwavering in his love of her than any woman has a right to ask. If she asked him to do all that, like, I insist that you go through all of this public shame, uh, she could do that, but that would be, I mean, she, she would be asking a lot. And he's doing it voluntarily. It's like his own initiative, right? So, again, I know, um, uh, I know that it's hard to read this as a modern person and feel like he's in the right and she's in the wrong. But I'm pretty sure that that's how we're supposed to be reading this. She's proud. She's proud. She, she, it is arrogant of her to say no to him um, because of the extent to which he has proven himself. Um, uh, uh, oh, see, Veronica, no, he is certainly not allowed to kidnap her. No, he couldn't do that. If he offers any violence to her, then he completely forfeits anything that he would have gained. No, no, no. That's totally, that's totally fine. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> David Erbach says, so to the medievals, uh, um, Bell should have accepted Gaston. Well, he has good qualifications, no question. Uh, but no, because of the way that he treats her, right? He doesn't treat her well. Um, and... He, uh, to be arrogant the way that Gaston is, that's a blemish. If a knight is, 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 is arrogant like that. Um, what's the awesome word that was used of Sir Melius, Sir, um, Onslake's brother, the one who captures Arthur and Arthur fights for him against Akalon? Orgulous, that was it. He is an orgulous knight. That means arrogant and, and uh, full of himself, right? Gaston is, is also orgulous, and that's not a good look for a knight. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, no, so keep in, please keep in mind, I'm not advocating this as an applicable modern system. I'm just saying... Uh, you know, if, if we we, we got to try to enter into the world of the story here, um, when we hear Sir Pelias's backstory, 
we should not be thinking this guy is a creep and possibly a sociopath. Um, if we're, if that's our thought, it's an understandable thought from a modern point of view, but we're doing it wrong. Um, Sir Pelleas is not only a top 10 knight, he is a top 10 lover as well. Because there's a ranking there too. Uh, who's the greatest lover, right? Sir Pelleas, this is doing it right. This is above and beyond the call of duty. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, Joe wants to know if Pelleas brought this up, could Etard get punished for rejecting? Well, not by Arthur, Joe. Arthur does not have authority over matters of love. Um, uh, Guinevere, Guinevere could come down on her. Totally. Guinevere would have authority in this matter. Uh, Guinevere could form one of her, uh, one of her, like, uh, inquests of ladies, right? Uh, and they could condemn her for this activity. Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ben wants to know, so would medievals have considered the song Every Breath You Take actually romantic instead of creepy? Uh, yeah, sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, troubadours would, would be into that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so Peleus, strong, strong character, right? Really admirable guy. Just roll with it. He is. Okay. So Gawain, of course, says, I'll help you out, right? And he promises, explicitly promises to Sir Peleus that he will do his best to further Sir Pelleas's cause with the Lady Etard. Right? She won't talk to him. She won't talk to Gawain. Um, uh, she won't talk to Gawain, but... Uh, or she, she won't talk to, 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 to Pelleas, but she, she might talk to Gawain. So Gawain's like, I will intercede for you. Right? This is the second time we've had this happen. The second time we have had a knight undertake a, an amorous commission. Right? It happened with Sir Balin disastrously, right? When everybody ended up dead and he's standing there like I tried to do the right thing and, and everybody's dead now. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Gawain explicitly... I was trying to... When I, I, was, I, I was going back through this, this, uh, this section again, trying to find an excuse for Gawain. I was trying to like, okay, is like he trying to save Peleus from himself, and so really he's thinking about Peleus's own good all along. But no, he ex- he promises explicitly, and I'm looking at it. And I'm like, no, I can't get around the promise that he makes. Um, he promises explicitly to uh, further Peleus's cause and, and to uh, uh, to incur to convince her to love Peleus. Um, okay. Yeah, Karita, I agree. He should at least have been more vague. Had he made a promise of something like, I promise to uh, uh, help do like what is best for you or something like that, you know, you could imagine that he didn't break his promise. But no, he was very explicit. Oh, Veronica, sorry. Veronica was asking what would uh, the punishment be from Guinevere's lady court? Censure, primarily censure. Um, I mean, they could say like, if you want to retain your position in, you know, uh, ladyly society, um, you 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 have to accept him. Like it's not okay to do what you're doing. Um, 
uh, it's people like you that give ladies a bad name, and uh, we're we're gonna censor we're gonna censure you publicly uh, if you don't accept them. Would probably be the kind of move. At least that's the kind of thing that happens in other stories of this kind. But we don't actually see this happening here, so probably shouldn't speculate. But that's the kind of thing that the the lady court would probably do. Okay. So. Wan Shi Sao, so he goes to Lady Attard and, and, and he proves that he's not Sir Pelias, right? I'm a stranger dude you've never met before. So Wan Shi Sao, that it was not Sir Pelias, she mod him a leaked and laud him into her castle and asked him faithfully whether he had slain Sir Pelias, and he said, Ye! Then he told her his name was Sir Gawain, of the court of King Arthur, and his sister's son, and who he had slain Sir Pelias. Truly, said she, that is great pity, for he was a passing good knecht of his body, but of all men on live I hated him most, for I could never be quit of him. And for ye have slain him, I shall be your woman, and to do anything that might please you. So she made Sir Gawain good cheer. Then Sir Gawain said that he loved a laddie, and by no mean she would love him. She is to blame, said Etard, and she will not love you, for ye that be so well born a man, and such a man of prowess, there is no laddie in this world too good for you. Will ye, sighed Sir Gawain, promise me to do what ye might do, be the faith of your body, to get me the love of me laddie? Ye, sir, and that I promise you be my faith. Now, said Sir Gawain, it is yourself that I love so well. Therefore, hold your promise. I may not chase, said the Lady Etard, but if I should be forsworn. And so she granted him to fulfill all his desire. Wow. What, first of all, what an operator, though, right? I mean, Gawain, holy cow, Gawain. Um, uh... Karina says, good cheers. Is that what the kids are calling it these days? Yeah, I don't think things get to... I I do think that the when she's making him good cheer, I think there's some heavy flirting going. I don't think we're going beyond heavy flirting yet when she's making him good cheer. Um, uh, but I, I think there's some, there's some heavy flirting going on right here. But this is awful. This is terrible. So, I mean... Assuming, assuming I'm reading that right, and that she's flirting with him heavily before he makes his move. And because I think she is that I'm like, for ye have slain him, I shall be your woman and do and to do anything that may please you. And so she made Sir Gawain good cheer. I, she's flirting, right? I'm pretty sure she's flirting with him. So. This would be more what Gawain does would be more horrible if he was trapping her totally against her will, right? Um, uh, that would be even more horrible. That I don't think is happening here. I, that This seems to be consensual as far as she is concerned. Like, yes, he has kind of entrapped her here, but I think he's following up on her hints and, and, and everything. So he's not... I, I don't think he's completely taking advantage of her here. But the fact that she's awful too is pretty much the only excuse. I mean, it's it's his betrayal of Sir Pelias here is 
utterly unprovoked, right? And completely inexcusable. He has promised Sir Pelias to help him. Uh, knowing the, you know, long and tragic story um, uh, of, uh, of, of Sir Pelias and the Lady Attard, and he just moves in. Uh, you know, takes it as an excuse, takes this opportunity. So uses Sir Pelias's pain as a lever to, like, get in and have his own way with her damsel. Um, it's really horrible. I mean, it's just awful. Um, uh, yeah, and Karina... I don't even know why he does it. I mean, you're right. Karina's reminding us that we were told that Lady Attard, it's not like she is the most devastatingly gorgeous woman in England, right? So it's not like he's gone in like with full intention to help Sir Pelias and then he's like, but I'm like completely enchanted and before I knew what one thing led to another and oh my goodness, I couldn't help myself. That doesn't seem to be the situation, right? um, I don't know why he does it. I don't know what his motivation is. Um, it's one of the things that's so horrible about this is it's, I mean, when he decapitated that lady in his previous quest, in his first quest, right? Um, in the act of granting, of refusing to grant that knight mercy, that was at least explicable, Right. I mean, the the decapitating of the lady was an accident. He didn't would didn't mean to do that. But he was trying to decapitate the knight who was begging for mercy, which was bad and inexcusable, and yet understandable at least. Right. He was mad. Right. You killed my dogs. Okay. Fine. Like you know, Gawain's a dog person. I get that. That's you know, bad move. Still, like wrong thing to do. And yet again, I can imagine what leads him to that place. Right. Um, I, I, this, I can't, I can't follow. Um, yeah. Um, other than just like what betrayal for the sake of betrayal, I, I, yeah. Is he just a bad person? That kind of seems, um, uh, yeah, (laughs) it kind of seems like, I mean, for him to be, being a seducer of damsels is also not good. I mean, it's, it's not good. Um, yeah, Milthalio, I agree. When we think back to the choices that he made at the beginning, right? Like respecting the lady, the, the, you know, that other damsel to choose between the two guys fighting over her to give her some agency and determine the outcome. That was, a good thing, right? A wise thing, an insightful thing for him to hold off and say, wait a second, maybe that guy wouldn't thank me if I rescued him from these guys whom he has obviously deliberately allowed to, to capture him. That also was wise and respectful, Milthalio, as you say. And now just to, um, yeah. yeah oh, I absolutely agree. I think Doerstruck, this is exactly why I am so appalled by like every time I read this, it's like a new shock, right? Because it sounds all the way up until then, 
it sounds like, you know, I, I love the way he says this. So Domer Stroke says, when a TARD is saying, anyone who would deny you would be a fool. You are the best. I expected uh, Gawain to go all Nathan the prophet uh, and be like, thou art the man, right? Um, uh, the reference being when uh, when uh, David kills Bathsheba's husband, right? And then Nathan the prophet comes and he tells him a parable of somebody who does a, a sort of a similarly bad thing, uh, kind of a you know an agricultural parallel. And uh, and and Nathan says, "What would you do to this horrible person who did this terrible thing?" And David is like, "Oh, he should be hideously punished." And 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 and, and, uh, and then Nathan's like, "Thou art the man," right? So yeah, exactly. It sounds like he is setting her up, right? Um, you know, when she says she is to blame that, and she will not love you for that ye ye that be so well born a man and such a man of prowess, there is no lottie in this world too good for you, right? I was like, there's his opening, right? Be like. And lady, you know, let me talk to you about Sir Pelias, whom, okay, truth to tell, I actually didn't kill. But like, shame on, you know, you are to blame, lady. And I mean, like, right, it's there. He set it up. And then instead, instead, you know, he's like, so baby, uh, you know, uh, why don't you ditch him and come with me instead? I mean, it's, um, um, yeah, it, and Kareda, I agree. Like, there are so many other ways in which the story would still be dishonorable, but would make sense, right? Kareda is suggesting if if he were like, okay, you want this guy to, like, uh, leave you alone, right? So here's a good move. Why don't you sleep with me, and then he'll hate you, and he'll go away. Problem solved, right? I can help you with your problem, right? And see, Kareda, I was kind of thinking that, too. Like, I wanted to think... I always want to rationalize Gawain's action here and say, like, okay, no, this is... Pro- you know, he's probably going to go back to Sir Pelias and be like, look, brother, okay, she's not into you, okay? You're only doing yourself some harm here, so I'm doing you a favor, right? I'm taking this off the table, right? I'm, I'm, I'm you know, so now, uh, look, she's my girl, and you might hate me for this, you probably, but I'm, but it's for the best, but trust me, man, it's for the best for you long term, right? Like, you could, you could, you could rationalize that it makes sense it'd still be horrible for him to do he would still be massively dishonorable in how he treated Sir Pelias but again at least it has a motive that I can grasp um it's just Karita exactly he just proves himself to be the absolute worst wingman ever and that's it it's just he can't be trusted um yeah well um so yeah, there's just no defense. Uh, Gawain gets worse after he uh, started off badly and is getting worse and worse. Um, but um, but that's not the end of the story, right? Because then the damsel of the lake comes along. Now, this is Nimue. This is the one who wasn't into Merlin, right? So this is the lady of the lake who knows a little something about persistent gentlemen, Right? Um, but she didn't want Merlin. Now, by the way, Merlin, different situation with Sir Pelias, right? Sir Pelias is a knight of blood and prowess who has proven himself. And Merlin is sketchy, right? Merlin is an old wizard son of the devil dude, right? Um, she is within her rights as a lady to say, no, I'm not into the old magician devil dude, son of a devil dude. Um, uh, but anyway, so this that lady of the lake, that damsel of the lake, comes along 
and hears about um, everything that happened, right? And she's going to come and set things to right. Lo, said the damsel of the lock. She's talking to Etard now. Ye ought to be a shamed for to murder such a knicked. Because Pelis is going to go home and, and starve himself to death, right? He's, he's done, right? He's out. And therewith she threw such an enchantment upon here, that is Etard, that she loved him, Sir Pelias, so sore that well nigh she was near out of her mind. She casts a love enchantment so that now she desperately loves Sir Pelias, who now hates her. Ah, Lord Jesus, said this laddie Etard, how is it befallen unto me that I love no that I have hated most of any man on life? That is the righteous judgment of God, said the damsel. And then anon Sir Pelias awaked, and looked upon Etard, and one he saw her, he knew her, and then he hated her more than any woman on life, and sighed, Away, traitorous, and come never in my sight. And one she heard him say so, she wept, and mad great sorrow out of mind. Sir Knicht Pelias, said the damsel of the lock, tak your horse, and come forthwith out of this country, and ye shall love a laddie that will love you. I will well, said Sir Pelias, for this laddie Etard hath done me great despite and shame. And there he told her the beginning and ending, and how he had never purposed to have risen again till he had been dead. And now such grass God hath sent me that I hot her as much as I have loved her. Thank me, therefore, said the laddie of the lock. Because, of course, she is the one who is the laddie who will love him uh, that he will love, too. And the two of them go on and live happily ever after. Nimue marries Sir Pelias, and the, they are together until the end, right? Um, so Sir Pelias's story is a happy ending, right? And in the end, of course, like the horrible thing Gawain did does kind of turn out for the best, but it's, again, you can't compliment Gawain for that, right? It's, uh, it's Nimue that makes everything, um, everything turn out right. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, uh, Nancy was just saying, this is very Midsummer Night's Dream, and Deborah at the same time said, when does Robin Goodfellow show up? Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, no, it is. It is very Midsummer Night's. Well, sort of. It's n- but notice the difference, right? The difference between this and Midsummer Night's Dream is that Midsummer Night's Dream is mischief, right? Like, let's just make them fall in love with the other one, like, for fun, right? Uh, and then chaos will ensue, and that will be amusing. Um, but uh, this is, this is, what is the phrase? The righteous judgment of God. Right, and it has that element. Right, when she afflicts the Lady Attard uh, with love for Sir Pelias, it is a, it is a punishment. Right, she is being punished for her wicked behavior towards him. Right, her shameful behavior towards him, and now she is going to go nearly out of her mind for love of Sir Pelias, but it's no more than she deserves because it's this is just returning back on her what she did, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly, Veronica. Etard doesn't have anyone to love her anymore, unlike Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, yeah, we don't, and we don't have all the couples at the end, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, 
yeah. Well, Karina, no, she didn't. Okay, no, she didn't betray him exactly. That was that was that was that was wrong. Well, okay, no, yeah, all right, 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 right. Now, betrayal is the wrong word. Um, but she was she treated him shamefully. She treated him shamefully, and wrongfully, like you know, refused to reciprocate his love, and so as a result, she is the victim. She becomes now the victim of unreciprocatable love, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so that works out, and then Peleus, it's going to work out for him. He's the one of the greatest knights and one of the greatest lovers, and so he gets a very high lady after all, much, much higher than the Lady Atard, right? And who is going to take care of him. Um, you'll notice one of the last passages in this section is how she makes good and sure that he never fights against... He's, he, he's never in a tournament against Sir Lancelot or Sir Tristram because he's he's like top five, but he's still below. He's not number one, right? Um so she protects him. She makes sure that he never goes up against somebody that he can't beat, which is most people he can beat. But uh, uh, she protects him from Lancelot and Tristram. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Thus ends. Okay, yeah. Thus ends Gawain's adventures. And as I said, uh, we'll come back to. So remember, sir. Marhouse, he he will have an interesting kind of destiny. He is, of course, going to become a major figure. He's the the son of the King of Ireland, um, another son of the King of Ireland, not the one who died in Sir Balin's quest. Um, but he's going to come in and play an important role later on in the Sir Tristram story. So we'll 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 meet him again. Uh, and Sir Owain, of course, is uh, going to be a a minor character throughout. Um, yeah, Stephen says, so it's not just Tolkien's men who marry up. Uh, no, no, that's a thing. Um, that's a thing. Sir Pelleas certainly has the, a very Tolkienian kind of happy ending, right? Not exactly how it happens with Baron, but still. All right. So let's start our new section. So we end... The first section we come to uh, the business about the Emperor Lucius. So first of all, remember that historically speaking, like chronologically speaking, we're fourth century, right? This stuff has, sounds like it's happening within the last 50 years. You know, it sounds like a 14th or 15th century story. It's not. It's a fourth century story. So the Romans are still around, right? The Roman Empire is still around. Um, and... Uh, You will notice, notice how different this whole section sounds, right? If you had a harder time reading this section, don't worry. You're not going crazy. It's not you. This section is legitimately harder. uh, And the language is different than the rest of it. One of the, one of the clear reasons for that um, we know the source for this text very clearly. Uh, and the, he has a different source for this part than he had for his other parts. And um, the source for this part is the Middle English poem, which is called the Alliterative Mort Arthur. This is a very important 
Um, this is a very important source uh, because, of course, it is also the primary source and model uh, for J.R.R. Tolkien's Fall of Arthur. Um, that Middle English poem was one of the most sort of prominent and famous of the um, of the uh, Middle English King Arthur poems of the 14th century. Merely having a different source doesn't exactly justify what's going on in this text, right? There are people who speculate that this section, the section about the Emperor Lucius, was the first section written by Mallory. That seems to me possible. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll we'll get into it a little bit more here. Let's read the first part and tell me what you notice. It befell when King Arthur had wedded Queen Guinevere and fulfilled the round table. And so after his marvellous Knictes and he had vanquished the most party of his enemies, that soon after come Sir Launcelot de Lac unto the court, and Sir Tristram's come that time also, and then King Arthur held a royal feast and rent table round. So it befell that the Emperor Lucius, procurer of the public wheel of Rome, sent unto Arthur messengers, commanding him for to pie his truage that his ancestries had pied before him. When King Arthur wist what they meant, he locked up with his grey eagen, and angered at the messengers passing sore. Than were this messengers afeard, and canelled still, and durst not arise, they were so afeard of his grim countenance. Then one of the Knictes messengers spake aloud and sighed, Crowned king, misdo no messengers, for we be come at his commandment, as servitors should. Then spake the conqueror, the recried and coward Knict, Why fairest thou my countenance? There be in this hall, and they were sore aggraved, thou durst not for a dukedom of Londes look in their faces. Do you hear it, especially in their dialogue at the end? Listen to it again. Crowned king, misdo no messengers, for we be come at his commandment, as servitors should. Then spake the conqueror, the recried and coward knicked, Why fairest thou my countenance? There be in this hall, and they were sore aggraved, thou durst not for a dukedom of Londes look in her faces. Uh, do you hear the alliteration? Crowned king, misdo no messengers, come at his commandment, servitors should. Hear it? It's not in normal alliterative lines at this point, but it is much more alliteration than Mallory generally used in the earlier sections, right? It just keeps cropping up. Mothalio, it does have a poetic lilt to it, a different lilt to it. He's following a different source, but it's not just that he's following a different source. He's following it more closely, right? His He is adapting his style to the style of the original much more closely than he does anywhere else. This, I think, is what leads a lot of people to suspect that this is the first thing that he did, um... You know, the idea being, okay, when Mallory started, he was just like, I'm going to kind of update 
you know, the alliterative Mort Arthur and then, you know, but he hadn't really sort of developed his own prose stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to render it in prose and I'm going to kind of, I'm going to shorten it and I'm going to update it because he does shorten it a good deal. Um, I'm going to shorten it. I'm going to update it some and, um, you know, but, but it's still, it's, he's going to follow the source pretty closely. And then he, uh, goes off, goes away from the sources more in his other writings. Um, I don't, um, I don't really know, but yeah, Michelle, it infects his, his, um, his dialect all the way through, right? All the way through, um, his spelling, his, 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 his word choice, because he's following the original text much more closely. Um, though, Can you guess which which bit is not in his source? That first paragraph, right? He writes that first paragraph to contextualize it. It befell when King Arthur had wedded Queen Guinevere and fulfilled the round table, so after his marvelous kinnictus had vanquished the ma- and, and and Sir Lancelot comes to the court and Sir Tristram comes to the court, right? That's all Maori. That's not in the source. Then, so it befell that the Emperor Lucius, procurer of the public wheel, now, now we're doing the poem, right? Now he's, now he's, he, he, he's, ad- he's adapting. Okay, so there are a couple ways, to, sort of stepping back now from, from the linguistic elements of this and, and him dealing with his source and thinking about the story as it stands, right? Um, King Arthur has established himself we have, you know, first we, we we've seen Maori developing that story from the beginning, right? From young Arthur pulling the sword out of the stone, needing to, you know, fighting with the eleven kings, needing to establish his kingdom. The Round Table has been established. We've gotten some more adventures, right, to show what the Round Table is like. Um, we have his betrayal by Morgan Le Fay, and we've uh, we've ended the career of Merlin being trapped beneath the stone. So we are entering into sort of the long golden age now, right? The, the build-up and establishment of the basic frame of the story has happened. Um, so from here on out, it's going to be primarily adventures that happen during that golden age until we come to the quest of the Sancreal, which is the sort of climax of this golden era, right? And then, of course, we will come to see its fall and conclusion at the end. Um, so this is the moment where we get, uh, where we sort of settle in, right? Arthur's court has been established as the frame, but there's one thing yet, right? There is still a measuring stick out there that it hasn't that hasn't been used, right? In order to fully establish Arthur's court as the standard right, for this whole age. There's Rome. We have to deal with Rome, right? The uh, the intervention of the Romans, this war with the Romans, uh, is not just in the alliterative Mort Arthur. There are other sources, um, other early Arthurian stories that have... Um, that ha- that have this episode in it as well, um, of the Romans sending their messengers up to England to demand tribute of Arthur, and Arthur refusing to pay the tribute and instead challenging him to battle and him taking his knights of the Round Table and all of his subject kings and going down and invading the continent uh, and eventually conquering Lucius. Spoiler: Arthur's going to win. Um, uh, defeating uh, the Emperor Lucius and being crowned king 
uh, excuse me, emperor of Rome, uh, and then going back and forgetting that that ever happened, right? He's not going to have much interaction with the rest of Europe, which he theoretically is ruling as emperor, right? Um, so, um, uh, anyway, this is, um, uh, it, it makes sense, right? But it's also, at the same time, there's a way in which you'll remember my title for the whole class here tonight was, um, you know, adventures, personal and political, right? There's a sense in which this is also like a political adventure, right? It's like this situation is for the realm, for Arthur as king and for England as a realm, what any of the adventures that arise is for the individual knights, right? Having been had this challenge delivered to them, well, they can't not do it, right? Uh, you know, they need to they need to prove themselves uh, in this adventure that has come along to them. Um, it's less about, like, we must acquire power, because again, they don't do anything with the power. It's less about, um, you know, we, uh, we must defeat our rivals or we must protect our borders. There's none of that, right? It's just this situation arises, an insult has been given, and so you would not be a true knight if you did not rise uh, to that challenge uh, and confront the enemy who is uh, confronting you. Um, so, uh, yeah. Now, uh, David, you are right. We can see already, you, working on his new, his, you know, this different source here, Arthur is very different. Arthur comes, the, the whole added, you, you, can, you can smell the new text, right? This Arthur is a different Arthur. First of all, since when has he been called the Conqueror? Right. Uh, you know, right away, the conqueror. Right. That's Arthur. So, OK. Um, but I agree. Much more fearsome and majestic, David. I think you're absolutely right. Um, the uh, the the ambassadors cowering before the the angry, fierce face of Arthur. Right. That's not how we've seen Arthur um, before. Uh, so, yeah, grim countenance. That is new. Dolorous stroke. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um so, here's the message. They didn't even get to deliver the message yet. Now, here's their message. Sir, said one of the senators, So Christ may help. I was so afeard when I looked in the, thy face that mine heart would not serve for to say my message. But sithen it is my will for to say mine errand. The great is well, Lucius, the emperor of Rome, and command is thee upon pine that will fall to send him the truage of this realm that thy father Uther Pendragon paid. Other else he will bereave thee all thy realm is that thou wieldest, and thou as rebel, not canoeing him as thy sovereign, withholdest and retainest, contrary to the statutes and decrees, mad by the noble and worthy Julius Caesar, conqueror of this realm." So, Arthur, you're a criminal withholding the tribute, uh, and uh, you must send me the tribute on, and I love the ominous, vague threat, right? Upon pain that will fall, right? Uh, on uh, uh, Upon pain of that which will come after if you refuse to do this, right? Um, I love that. So... But of course, he spends half of his time explaining how he really didn't want to say this and he was afraid to say it, but he's just going to, but like, please remember not to kill me because I'm only the messenger. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> I agree. There is no way this messenger is getting paid enough, uh, for the duty here that he's doing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, David, I'm not really sure. David asks, what kind of Roman Empire is Mallory imagining? Um, uh, yeah, it's really unclear. I mean, we'll look at that a little bit, the, what the text shows us of this. But I don't think either Mallory or the alliterative Mort, um, that is his source, neither one of them is particularly concerned with let us outline the actual details of the Roman empire and its political scope and all that kind of thing. They're just, they're the enemy, but notice they are the traditional enemy, right? Going back to Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar conquered Britain. And ever since then, Britain has been subject, theoretically subject to Rome. What is at stake here? What is at stake here is a kind of bragging rights. So there's this, uh, there's this thing that is that uh, scholars call the translatio imperii, the translation of empire. This concept, this medieval concept, of how like dominance and rightful rule passed from one kingdom to another. It starts in Troy, right? And then Troy is destroyed and it passes to Greece and then it passes from Greece to Rome and then it passes from Rome to England because of Arthur, right? That's kind of what's at stake here. The Roman Empire is outdated, right? Obviously in the 15th century, the Roman Empire is outdated and exactly, David, as you said, they're not. this is not about the Holy Roman Empire in Germany, Right, like the 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 High Middle Ages, Holy Roman. It's not about. This is not about Germany. Right, it has nothing to do with the Holy Ro- the contemporary Holy Roman Empire. This has to do with the concept of ancient Rome. Right, the concept of ancient Rome as the great empire, the last of the great empires, and so therefore we need to. Sh- if Arthur's court is going to be the greatest, it needs to be the successor of Rome. That's conceptually clear, right? That's what this whole thing is really sort of about. That's what's at stake here, um, and that's why we're bringing up uh, uh, we're bringing up Julius Caesar. That's why we're um, uh, uh, talking about the this the truage, right? Um, you owe um, tribute to Rome. You are subject to Rome. And Arthur's saying, no, I own Rome. I have a right to Rome. And he he claims a political right. Like, forget your Julius Caesar. Constantine was from Britain, right? The Britons have taken over the Roman Empire, and I'm going to claim it in the name of my ancestors, because apparently Constantine is is his ancestor, right? Um, So maybe Uther Pendragon paid tribute to Rome. Right. But this is not your father's England. Right. Now Arthur is here and it is time officially for the torch of empire to pass from Rome to England. Um, by the way, there were Americans among the founding fathers who would talk this way, too, about the uh, empire then passing from England to America. 
didn't really catch on, but the idea was still there. Why do you think the eagle is the symbol of America, right? Kind of random, right? It's not like there are so many eagles here. Uh, and then you've got poor Ben Franklin, who is like, the turkey, the wild turkey should be the the national bird of America, you know, and, and everyone's like, dude, do you have no sense of symbolism whatsoever? Like, seriously, you want to put a turkey on our, on our, on our flags? No, an eagle. It needs to be an eagle. Um, why? Rome. Absolutely Rome. Uh, to show that, that like, to, they, they were evoking this concept of the translation of empire. America is the new successor. Right. Uh, we are going to be flying the eagles now. Uh, and so the great new America is the great new up and coming empire that's going to take over the torch from England. That is absolutely. Yeah. All the Greco-Roman architecture in Washington, D.C., Catriona. Absolutely. Um, so. Um, um, so, yeah, that's that. The, 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 this is the concept. Right. Um, Arthur's just being more overt about it, right? Uh, the founding fathers were comparatively subtle uh, in how they did this. Um, Arthur is just coming coming straight out. Um, yeah. Um, Stephen, uh, Stephen Cover asks, would the medievals be thinking of the great empires as the four from the book of Daniel? <sighs> Stephen's referring to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 where he dreams of the big huge statue that's the head of gold and chest of silver and belly of brass and thighs of iron um, and uh, uh, and well no legs of iron I mean his lower legs and then his uh, 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 feet composite of clay and, and iron and uh, no well I mean okay would he be thinking about that yeah absolutely they love that passage um, but the standard, by the way, this, I mean, the standard medieval exegesis of that dream, um, the belly of brass. Of, so you've got the, the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, um, the Greeks, Alexander the Great is the brass. Uh, the Romans uh, were the iron. That's that was absolutely standard interpretation of that. Um, were they thinking of that? Not necessarily, because, again, they, although they love that passage. They go back to the Aeneid. The Aeneid is like the founda- one of the, the great foundational books, like almost with the Bible in a sense, uh, of medieval culture. Um, so the idea of empire passing, starting at Troy, it starts at Troy, right? Um, this is also why, by the way, this is a pro-English move as well, because uh, remember the English kings are ultimately start with Brutus the Trojan as well. So um, their ancestry is in Troy as well. So they, they go all the way back to the beginning, right, in this line of empire. So um, uh, anyway, um, so uh, what was I going to say? Um, oh, so Stephen, they wouldn't have been like from Babylon down through. They started at Troy, not Babylon. So they weren't literally thinking about those but, but the concept of progression of empire, I think, was very strongly influenced by the Daniel passage, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dolores Stroke says, you, you start with the matter of Jerusalem, then you have the matter of Rome, then the matter of Britain, and then the matter of Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Okay.
Let's keep going. It is well, sighed the king. Now say ye to your emperor that I shall in all haste me ready mock with my keen knictis, and by the river of Rome hold my rune table, and I will bring with me the best people of fifteen realms, and with him ride on the mountainas in the mine alondas, and mine and mine doon the wallas of Milan the proud, and sith ride unto Rome with my royalist knictis. No, ye have your answer, high you to. Hi, you that ye were hence, and from this place to the port, there ye shall pass over, and I shall give you seven days to pass unto Sandwich. Okay. Um, here is his answer. Now, I'll come back to the language and to the markings in a second. Um... Arthur accepts the challenge, right? He is being bullied by a historical bully, right? Um, he is being challenged by the might, the legendary might of Rome. And he's going to rise to that. Note, Arthur is the underdog here, right? Um, he is being forthright and courageous in challenging the emperor, Um He's going to come with his keen knictis and he's going to hold his round table by the river of Rome. Um, he's going to come through Milan. I, I don't know why Milan is the proud exactly, but he's going to come through Milan. He's going to ride onto Rome with his royalist knights. Now get out and tell the king, um, tell the emperor. The seven days to pass into Sandwich, by the way, that's, they're going to really have to hoof it. Um, what he's saying to the messengers here is he's saying, I will give you safe conduct out of my realm. You have seven days to make the seacoast. Should you take longer than seven days to get from here to the seacoast, all bets are off, right? You'd best ride swiftly. So he gives them safe conduct but he hustles them. He's being very stern with them, right? And they're scared. And they're, like, changing their horses at every town. And they are booking it to the coast. Because they can barely make it in time. He's deliberately making it hard for them. Um, and when they get back to the Emperor Lucius, they pass along how panicked they were. And how stern he was. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Stephen, I suspect that the round table, I don't think he's going to transport the furniture, but maybe he will. Maybe I'll actually bring the physical table with him. It's mostly about the people, of course, uh, but I, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past him necessarily to transport the table. Um, Catriona, yeah, he does tell them exactly what route to take. Um, notice again, he's saying... I will not have you spying on me, right? I don't trust you. I'm not going to kill you out of hand, and I want you to deliver my answer to the emperor, but I don't trust you. I'm going to be watching you. Here's the route you have to take, and you have seven days to do it. He's being very stern. Um, yeah. Um, 
Okay. Let me talk a little bit about the language here. So these markings, um, the Vinavar edition has this, they're not, I used slashes and backslashes because it was easiest. It has the little diagonal, um, like accent marks, basically marking them. Um, in the text, it's complicated. I have to admit, I'm not a huge fan of that from Vinavar. He makes it so you can see what he's doing, right? These sound like alliterative lines, like actual alliterative lines of poetry. By the river of Rome, hold my rune table. That's kind of an alliterative line. And mine down the wallas of Miline the Prouda. Kind of an alliterative line. And Sith ride unto Rome with my royalist canictes. Alliterative line. From this place to the port, there ye shall pass over. Alliterative line. Not awesome. Not perfect alliterative lines. What I dislike is it makes it look like it's a, it's like a direct quote. It's not a direct quote. Um... Check this out. Here's the original. This is from the alliterative Mort Arthur, right? So this is an older poem. It's like a 14th century poem. So it's like 100 years old-ish. Don't know exactly. Um, anonymous author. We don't know who wrote it. Um, this is in older Middle English, so I'm going to do the older Chaucerian pronunciation for this. This is the passage that Arthur... That Arthur this is the passage that Maori is adapting in the, in the part, passage we just read. Be the river of Rion, hold me rune table, fang the fermes in fife of all the fire realms, for all the menace of this of his meekt and maugre his ein, and merk sithen over the muntes unto his mine londes to meloin the marvellous and meendoon the wallas in Lorraine nay in Lombardy leif shall a nuther, nokin laid upon leaf that far his laus yames, and turn unto Tuscany, when me time thinkes, when my me team thinkes, read all this Rome, Rome landes, with riotous knictes, bid him mak rescues, for mensk of himselven, and met me for his manhead, in thos mine landes. Then skipping a few lines. Throw this place to the port, there thou shall pass over. Seven dias to Sandwich, e setteth thee large. Okay, so these are the lines from the original poem. Now, look what Maori has done in his adaptation of this. I think it's really interesting to look at this side by side. First of all, notice, these are not quotations, right? We can identify the particular lines. And mean dune the Wallace of Milain the Prude, right? is Maori, is clearly to Meloin the Marvelous and Meendun the Wallace, right? Um, so, okay, it's the prude instead of the Marvelous, so he's taken away one of the alliterative words from the line, right? And he switched the order because it worked better in the syntax of his sentence, right? So this is a near quotation of that line. It's a close paraphrase of that line. But it's not so. I like I said, I, I'm not a huge fan of the markings of putting in the markings because they're not quotations. He's not trying really to make nor like r regular alliterative lines by the rules, you know, by the conventions, the full conventions of alliterative poetic lines. 
But nevertheless, we can certainly hear in these places a very clear memory of those old lines. Right. Um, so I can't decide. I can't decide whether he is. Um, again, it's like, is he subverting or is he clueless? Right. Is he just not good at alliterative verse? Um, or is he just the, the what what sounds like alliterative lines are coming out just because he's being very close in his uh, in his adaptation of the source? Again, I t- tend towards the latter. I tend towards clueless rather than subverting. I don't think he's trying to mess up the lines. I don't think he's trying to make alliterative lines exactly. I just think in some places he's keeping a lot of the language, and so it comes out alliterative, right? Um, but, um, but it's not all that he changes. Stephen, you're exactly right. Um, there's a big difference between Marvelous and Proud, right? And Mean Dune the Wallace of Milan the Proud. Yeah. Um, Milan the Proud deserves it, doesn't it, Stephen? Right? Whereas, uh, Meloin the Mervalus, wow, gosh, that sounds real nice, Right? Is Milan, is Milan marvelous? Well, maybe we shouldn't mine down its walls, right? Maybe it would be, you know, are we smashing this, this stained glass, right? The alliterative Arthur absolutely is, right? He is stern, very stern, right? Um, look at, um, oh, and this one is my favorite. And Sith, ride unto room with my royalist knictus. Do you remember the word that's changed there? Did you catch it in the earlier version? It's not royalist knights that he's going to bring to Rome. Remember whom he promises to unleash, whom he threatens to unleash on Rome in the alliterative version? Read all this room landes with riotous knictis, his riotous knights, right? Riotous knights. We're going to come down to Rome and we are going to break stuff. Okay. Like we are coming we are going to, we're going to, I was about to say, take no prisoners. No, we're going to take prisoners. Right. He explicitly says we're going to take, we're going to take prisoners and make you ransom them. Right. We're going to come down and we're going to wreck things. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to destroy stuff and you're going to regret it. Right. He is much more ruthless. Mallory's shift from riotous to royalist is a, I mean, that's a, a beautiful little glimpse into the change that he is making. He, Mallory, is sticking really close to his source, right? But he's not totally comfortable with King Arthur from the alliterative mort. His Arthur's not really like that, right? His people aren't really like that. So, um, no, riotous, no. The Knights of the Round Table, they're not riotous. They're not just going to go destroy stuff for the sake of destroying stuff, right? They're, um, they're royal. Royal. And so therefore you should fear them in open combat, right? Because, you know, they're going to take you to the cleaners and stuff, but, you know, honorably, honorably. Um, notice how he's condensing this too, right? I mentioned earlier that he's condensing. By the river of Rome, hold my rune table, he goes to. It's not the river of Rome. It's the it's the Rhone River that he says by the river of Rhone. So by the Rhone River, you know, 
by Germany there, I'm going to hold my round table. That's going to be step one. First, I'm going to come down to the Rome, right? Then I'm going to fang the fermes. I'm going to loot the land. So a ferma is like a tract of land, right? Fang means to, to loot, to spoil, right? I'm going to come down to the Rhone. I'm going to hold my round table there. And when we get there, I'm going to loot the countryside in Vife. <laughs> I love that juxtaposition, right? Um, I, I promise I'm going to loot the land of all the fair realms. All the realms around there, I'm going to loot the heck out of them, right? For all the menace of his meeked and Maugre his Aine. Why am I going to do it? To spit in the eye of the emperor of Rome, right? Because of, for all the menace of his might, like, ooh, he's threatening his vicious might. Yeah, I'm going to spit in his eye. Maugre his Aine, right? In despite of his eyes and in the face of the menace of his might, I'm going to loot that whole land. And Merk Sithen over the Muntas into his mine Londas. So I'm going, to, I'm going to march. I'm going to cross over the mountains then. That's just a warm-up. Then I'm going to cross over the mountains into his mainlands, right? South of the Alps. To Meloin the Marvelous. In Lorraine, nay in Lombardy. Lef shall I neither no kin lied upon Leif that far his law is lambs. I'm going to kill everybody. I'm going to kill everybody who stays loyal to him. Everybody who supports him, I'm going to kill them. This is what Arthur's threatening in the alliterative mort. This is serious business, right? Um, It doesn't mean he's going to massacre the entire populace. It does mean that he's going to execute all of the lords who, who hold their fealty to Rome, right? Anybody who takes the emperor's side... Um, that far his law is Yemus. Yemus means uh, abide by or uh, respect the laws of, of the emperor, right? All of those who stick to, 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 to Lucius, um, I'm going to execute them all, right? And then I'm going to turn to Tuscany, right? When may time think is, right? When I feel like it, right? When I feel like the time is right, I'm going to turn my attention to Tuscany and I'm going to ride all over those lands, right, those wide lands, or maybe those Roman lands, not quite sure what he means by Ruma there, um, with riotous knights. I'm gonna, my riotous knight's going to run up and down the land of Tuscany, right? And it's going to get ugly, right? And here's what we're going to do. Um, bid him make rescues uh, for Minsk of himself. And so we're going to capture your nobles and we're going to make you ransom them. Right for Minsk of himself. Minsk means honor or worship, actually in Maori's terms. Um, make rescues in order to restore their honor. They're going to have to pay ransoms to us, right? Uh, and met me for his manhood in Thasmine Landis, and I'm I'm not going to stop until he comes and meets me in person, right? And proves his manhood in battle on the mainlands. That's. Like I said, the alliterative Mort Arthur Arthur is a, a serious dude, right? Um, he's, uh, yeah, now, Jordan, I don't think, the mention of the path over the mountains, I mean, is that a, is that a, is that a Hannibal reference? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, he's certainly not going to bring any elephants. Um, he's just sort of talking about what he's evoking is like marching his way through the Roman empire, through the Northern part of the empire, right? France and Germany. Right. Um, and he's going to, and then I'm going to cross over the mountains and then I'm going to come down into, into the, into your mainlands into Italy itself. Right. Uh, and I'm going to roam up and down with my riotous knights, and we're going to cause all manner of mischief and we're going to kill your vassals and we're going to take some of your lords captive and make you rescue them. And, um, and we're going to do all this until you come out and fight me. 
right? So uh, he is making it briefer, right? By going straight to the river of Rome to hold his round table instead of by the Rhone, he's just sort of cutting to the chase, right? Um, I shall in all haste me ready mock with my keen knictis, and by the river of Rome hold my round table. We're, we're just going straight to Rome. Arthur's going straight to Rome, right? Mallory's Arthur going straight to Rome. Um, he is going to make a brief stop at Milan because they're proud and they deserve it, apparently. But uh, apart from that, he's coming straight to Rome. Lombardy, Tuscany, they all get a pass from Mallory's Arthur, right? Um, but he's going to come. So we have, we still do get that sternness, but less of that sternness, right? Okay, I'm not going to compare and contrast with the alliterative Mort all the way through. Um, I just wanted to both draw attention to sort of mention the, these whole these markers that Vinavar does, uh, look at what he's doing there. And again, I, I hope you see what I mean when I say I, I don't think he's trying to recreate the poetry. I don't think he's trying to preserve the poetry exactly. He's just following, adopting many of the phrases, but not blindly. Right. He is changing them. Right. We're not going to have riotous nights. We're going to have royalist nights. Um, yeah. Yeah. A dollar stroke says, I'm going to go straight to Rome unless I see three damsels by a fountain who offer adventures. Then a quick break. Yeah, exactly. Doris or giants who need killing. Right. That also might perhaps sidetrack things uh, very, very slightly. OK. Um well, look at the time. Let's wait on this one. This is a long and a complicated one. This is when the emperor sends forth his messengers and summons up his people. And boy, there's a lot of people, right? Uh, so we'll 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 start with this next time. Uh, we got pretty close to where I wanted to get to. Um, so yeah, next time we'll begin looking at the full might of the empire, uh, and then we will uh, go on to the confrontation. I think and believe we should be able to get through uh, all the rest of the, I'm not going to, a lot of this section is battle description. We'll look at a few salient examples of the uh, battle descriptions here, um, but I'm not going to spend too much time on the, the, the ebbing and flowing of the battles here. Um, We'll get the, the, the gist of that. Um, but I do want, of course, look at the fight with the, um, we have uh, an allegorical dream that gets interpreted. You probably guess that I want to talk about that. We've got the battle with the giant, which I'm going to want to talk about. Uh, and then we do need to look at the emperor and how Rome is depicted, um, which is interesting and begins here with the full might of the empire section. So anyway, we'll do all that stuff next week. And then we should be in position for the week after that to get to the, um, the tale of Sir Lancelot on time. Um, uh, which has nothing to do with Swamp Castle, by the way. Okay. Very good. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I will see you guys. I always pause. You always see me, like, looking up when I'm in the middle of saying I'll see you guys next week. That's my, wait a second, let me think for a moment as I'm speaking. Am I actually going to be here next week? Am I remembering correctly? Yes, I will be here next week. See you guys next week now. Bye.